Thank you for being with us this morning, and uh, we're going to continue in our series uh, of Advent, and we're going to uh, work through a passage in Luke chapter 1, and uh, I'll read it. I'll start at verse 57, and I'll finish up at verse 79. This is the word of the Lord. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son, and her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, asking him, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and he wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loose and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts saying, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit. And he prophesied saying, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. For he has visited and redeemed his people, and he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, I serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we turn our hearts to your word and we pray that as it has been read that your spirit would open our hearts and allow us to see and embrace the living word of God May we be those who not only hear your word, but may we be those who do your word, who rest in your word, who obey your word, who hide your word in our hearts that we might not sin against you. Would you be pleased to speak through your servant that your people may hear a word from the living God. We pray this in Christ's name and for his sake, amen. As humans, we are fascinated with light. Um, a few years ago, when Home Depot had, had done really bad in the stock market, they, they attributed to some of their growth to the number of things that they sold that was related to lights, light bulbs and light fixtures. And by volume, not by sales, because you can sell a refrigerator and there's more margin there than a light bulb, but by volume, that, that lights and lighting were, were we're fascinated by it, and we go to Home Depot to get them, and 
you know that, that your house is different when you have lights in it. You know what light can do to your outdoor living space, that it can turn a space that is uninviting and dark into a place that is hospitable and warm and open. That even the smallest of our children, that when you're trying to wean them out of your bed or out of uh, your room into their own room, that you know the beauty of a nightlight. And what a nightlight can do, it can make the difference of you, husband and wife, sleeping alone in your bed or having your kids in the middle of you. That you know what it's like to drive down rural Mississippi roads and because of trees and the cover of darkness that the first thing you do is throw on your high beams that you might see. The same is equally true about darkness. Our kids are typically afraid of the dark, that their minds wonder with who might be in the closet and who might be under the bed. That the same is also true um, in movies that we watch, that the villains typically move under the cover of darkness. I want to make a case to you that light and dark, this simple motif that we're talking about right now, is actually deeply embedded in the scriptures. Going back to Genesis, the Bible says that the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness and the light he called day and the darkness he called night. And, and the Lord formed two lights, the sun and the moon, to push the darkness back for us. The light he saw was good of darkness. Genesis does not say that that was good. You remember in Exodus chapter 10 when the Lord wanted to show Pharaoh and his people who was the true and living God. That you know the ninth plague? That, 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 that he caused a great darkness to come upon the face of the land, but his people in Goshen, that they had light, that they could see. And, and it wasn't just so that God could show that I control the sun and the moons and the stars. It was a sign of judgment that you in Egypt, you are under judgment. You don't see me. You don't know me. You don't respect me. You don't follow in my laws, right? But my people, my people, they have light. That when Jesus is describing what hell is going to be light, like, he says that there is a place three times in Matthew 8 and 22 and 25, he describes hell as a place of outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now compare that to what John says in Revelation chapter 21. He says, I saw no temple. In the city, for its temple is the Lord, the God Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need for sun or moon to shine in it, for the glory of the Lord gives its light. And its lamp is the Lamb. By its light the nations will walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. You see, John isn't just telling us that we won't sleep and there won't be night. There's something behind the imagery of darkness. There will be no unclean thing there. There will be nothing raising its hand in opposition against the Lord and his anointed there. There's no need to fear there. And so John says there's no night there. Consider this, that Matthew, Luke, 
and John, and I would put Mark in there, but Mark does not give us an Advent passage. He simply starts, and Jesus is like a full-grown man, right? But for the other three authors of the Gospels, they all speak of Advent through this lens or this motif of light and darkness. Consider Matthew chapter 2. The wise men saw a star shining brightly in the night, and they followed it, and they went to Herod, and it says, where is the king? We saw his star. We saw his star shining brightly in the night, and we're coming to worship him, but Herod, you're not the king. And so they leave Herod's temple, and they keep following the star under the cover of night until they get to Jesus. You see? Darkness, and there's a light. What about John? John, who writes this. This is what John writes. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. All things were made by him. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Our passage this morning, Luke, when describing the advent, he says, because of the tender mercy of God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of peace. Why would all of these men, Isaiah and Genesis, Abraham, Luke, John, Matthew, why would they all speak of the coming of Jesus with this light and dark motif? It's because of this, that in their minds, the long-awaited arrival of Jesus is seen as the final coming of true light in a world that had become immensely dark. And so for them, you could learn a lot about the gospel, a lot about the world through childlike phrases like light and dark. And so what I want to do is just kind of work through our passage, and I want to put three things before us this morning that I think helps us to rightly ready our hearts, that, that, that teaches us what we should feel and long for during this time of year particularly. And the first is this, Advent is a time to face the reality of darkness in our present world. And so you're hearing me say, of all the things that we should be feeling this time of year, one of the things that we should be feeling is fear and sadness. And this idea that everything's not all right. Now I'll show you what I mean. The first thing we see in this text is that there's a man named Zechariah that he's speaking, but notice what it says in verse 67. This isn't just Zechariah speaking. It says, and his father, John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit. And he prophesied and he said, and so right there you know that Holy Spirit is behind this and the Holy Spirit is actually showing us how the Holy Spirit himself sees the world through the mouth of Zechariah. And what does Zechariah say? What does the Holy Spirit say? Look at what emerges from this prayer and this prophecy. Look at verses 70 through 71. 
And this is Zechariah thinking about the scriptures. Look at verse 70. And he's speaking about God's promises. Look at verse 70. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. And so Zechariah, what he's doing is the Holy Spirit has given us a walking history lesson. Zechariah is alive this day, but look at what the Holy Spirit does. He takes his mind back to what the prophets from of old had said in their day. Look at verse 71, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. And so if you were to go back in time 600 years and ask prophets like Isaiah, like Jeremiah, like Ezekiel, like some of the major and minor prophets, tell us what you saw in your day. And you want to know what they saw in their day? They saw hatred. And they saw enemies, enemies rebelling against them and enemies rebelling against God back in their day. Right. So that's the first thing. He's quoting what he's already heard them say. So in their day, enemies and hatred. Look at verse 73 through 74. He goes back a little further in history to the oath that God swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear. And so what we think is happening there is Zechariah is bouncing from Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel all the way back to Abraham. And God made some promises to Abraham in Abraham's day. You remember in Genesis when Abraham, when God told Abraham, you're going to die. And your people will go into Egypt and they will stay there for 400 years. And do you remember what Moses said to Pharaoh? When Moses goes into Pharaoh some 400 plus years later, Moses actually tells Pharaoh to let my people go that we may go out and worship. You see, that's what Zechariah is remembering. That there wasn't just hatred and darkness and enemies in Isaiah's day. That this goes all the way back to Moses' day, and it goes all the way back to Abraham's day, and what we're supposed to do is extrapolate and say, wait a minute, if it's going back that far, and then that far, and then that far, this darkness goes all the way back to the garden. When Adam and Eve ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they fell and they died spiritually, that, that darkness entered into the world. It was a darkness that the Lord did not want us to taste and see and know but it had already happened. They let it in so much so that when you bounce over, look at how he ends it in verse 79, that those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of peace. All of a sudden, it's not just what Isaiah said. It's not just what Abraham said. It's not just what Moses said. It's not just back there at the beginning. I stand here right here right now under the shadow of death. And so when we read this prayer prompted by the spirit, we're supposed to ask, what is this darkness he speaks of? What is this hostility he speaks of? Who are these enemies? And I'll tell you what it is. It's the power of darkness. The prince of the power of the air who is now at work in the sons of disobedience, who by nature are children of wrath, who run from the light. It is about this world system that, that can't see God, that is ignorant to God and hostile to God, that they can't see truth right and left, that, that it is this no one seeking after God, no one understanding under the prince of the power of the air, right? It's out there, this hostility towards the Lord. And you see it. 
And if you're honest with yourself, you feel it in your own heart. When you don't want to honor him, when you don't want to submit yourself to his laws and his ways, when we desire other things more than him, this is what Zechariah is talking about. This darkness is immense. It's thick. It's the same darkness that exists right now when you watch the news and you hear about wars and rumors of wars. It's the same darkness you hear when you hear about international chaos, when you hear about Christians being beheaded, right? It's the same darkness that you hear with countries launching missiles and for right now they're going into oceans, right? It's that kind of darkness. It's the darkness you hear when you hear about people fleeing persecution in northern Africa only to be bought and sold as slaves right here, right now in 2017 Libyans, right? Africans still being bought and sold like property. That's the darkness of the world. It's the darkness that you hear and, and hear about when you hear about men walking into churches and shooting up everybody. It's the darkness that you hear about in our own city when a teenager refuses a sexual advance of another teenager, and you know what he does? He kills her, right? This is the darkness that I'm talking about, that, that, that we have to see. It's the darkness you see and hear about right now where man after man is just falling, right? All of these charges of sexual harassment in the workplace and in Hollywood, right? You hear about it, and it's darkness. It's darkness. It's darkness. It's not right. It's wrong. And it's not on a break just because it's Advent. That with the eyes of faith, It's out there. Now, depending on how you grow up, that, that we start as naive, optimistic children. And if, just, just if, if you have both parents in your home and if you can afford the luxuries of life, that, that you can build a, a, a gate, right? You can live in a certain neighborhood and send your kids to a certain school and you can give them privileges and rights and they're not bad or wrong. But here's what we can do as parents. If we have means, we can push the darkness away for a season. But it will eventually get them. And they will see and experience hard things. And if you're less fortunate where you're raising kids on your own, it's not that when they get 16 or 26, your kids start to see some things about the world when they're six. They hear about cousins who are, are, are getting locked up. They know about aunts and uncles who are addicted. They start to see the world where over there it takes you 16 to 26 years to see it. But no, in my reality right now, I don't have to be 16. I'm six and I know this world is dark. That's what we see in the passage, right? That, that this time of year, in the coming of Jesus, Zechariah sees our world is not right. Things aren't right. I'm not right. And therefore, it's a time of year, if we're honest, that we need to acknowledge that and not deny it. And not walk around wearing fake smiles and saying, hey, let's just get in the holiday cheer. This is like real life stuff. The world is not what it should be. And Jesus does not expect you to act like it is. 
The second thing is Advent is also a time to admit that we're often deceived and disappointed by lesser lights. Now, when I say a lesser light, I'm particularly thinking about those things that we can do and should do to push back darkness. These behaviors are important and commanded and necessary callings. And I'll give you a few examples, right? Let's just say that we're tired of hearing how innocent people are being robbed at gunpoint. And that's the darkness of that situation, a blatant disrespect for human life where people will actually prey on the weak and use guns to get what they want rather than to work and to make an honest living. And now a good and necessary lesser light, right, would be to increase police presence, right? That's a good response to crime is the law and police officers. And if you drive down Northside Drive right now, just go down to Maywood Mart, go down over here by Piggly Wiggly, go down here by Kroger, and here's what you're going to see this time of year. Blue lights in the parking lot. Why are they there? To push the darkness back. They're there to protect you when you go and shop so that you can shop in peace. And here's the thing about the darkness. You know what's going to happen, right? People are still going to commit crimes. They're just going to go to the places that are unpoliced. They might not do it over here, but you'll see it in South Jackson. And you'll see it in West Jackson. You see, all we're doing is moving the darkness. We're not fixing it. We're just temporarily during this season so that we can feel good and safe. This light shows up and all of a sudden criminal activity doesn't happen there, but it still happens. Amen. And so some people, right, might say, OK, well, if, if I, I want to I exercise my right to bear arms. And I think we should. Right. I, I think that, that there's a, a right in our country to bear arms and to, to, to do that. Right. That I think there's something to the scriptures of protecting the weak and the vulnerable, right? But here's what happens. Here's what always happens. And so one person says, okay, I will fight the darkness by getting my carry concealed permit. And I think, look, if you want to have that, that's on you. Like, I'm not binding consciousness. That, I'm not here to argue that. I'm just, I want you to stay with the logic. Here's what happens. You get a carry concealed, and you have the right to bear arms. And then you go to target practice and you're going to show that man, if you roll up on me, I'm going to show you I can drive out your darkness with, with, with my weapon. And here's what here's what happens. The gun makers, they don't care about how many guns are on our streets. They don't care about legislation. It's just about profit. And so here's what happens all the times in our rush to legalize and to put guns out there. You know what happens? Guns end up in the hands of the wrong people every time. Yeah. And so in our attempt to fight the darkness with our own force, we actually open up a back door. It's the same thing with education. I'm pro-education and, and pro-people being literate and, and knowing how to read and write and study and work. And we can get behind these causes and we should, right? But here is what happens. We put so much emphasis on education, education, success, and testing, and we push these things through. And now when this person goes to college, they're one of 10,000 who are sharp. 
They're one of 10,000 who made a 30 on the ACT, right? And so what happens when they're in that context, they're hardworking. I'm going to keep working. I got to prove myself. I got to prove myself. And all of a sudden, they end up with a lot of talent and a lot of resources and a lot of money and no integrity and no passion. You see how it works? In fixing one thing, we actually create monsters who think that money is all there is to life who think that having stuff is all there is to life? And Jesus says, what good is it to gain the world and lose your soul? You see what happens? We want to do this thing, and there's a back door all the time. All the time there's a back door. And therefore, what, what Advent reminds us is that the world is so broken that no human can put it back together again. Your education, your money, your causes, your passion, you cannot put the earth back together again. It's like Humpty Dumpty who had a great fall and all the king's horses and all the king's men could not put the earth back together again. You can't fix it. But we think that. Now, in our text, I think, I, I think Zechariah is aware of the lesser lights that deceive us. A little bit about Zechariah. He's a priest. And he's in the temple serving his time and the angel Gabriel shows up to him and says hey you and your wife Elizabeth will have a son he's like brother you know how old I am that's not happening right and so Gabriel says I have been in the presence of God and because you dis disbelieve you will not be able to speak for nine months and so that's why when you read it in our text, look at what it says in verse 64. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue was loosed. Why? Because he couldn't talk for nine months because he disbelieved. And so finally, when, when John the Baptist is born, they said, hey, what are you naming him? They says, John. And they're like, wait a minute. Nobody is John in your family. They, they check his wife. It's like, OK, you don't know what you're talking about. Hey, Zachariah, you tell me what's your son's name. He can't talk. And so he has to get a tablet and write it out. And the moment he writes it out, he starts to talk like this is that man, right? Now, here's the thing. Notice their response. Look at verse 65, verse 64. When he, he immediately, his mouth was opened and his tongue was loose and he spoke blessing God. Look at verse 65. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about throughout all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts saying, what then will this child be? Now stop right there. You see? That's a lesser light. Their emphasis after seeing this man talk after not talking for nine months you see where their eyes are going? Lord, what will this child do? And then notice how Zechariah starts. He doesn't start with his son. Now think about it. If you're 85 years old and you've never had a kid and you finally get a kid, I think my kid is special, right? Way more special than all of your kids. If I'm 80 and I can have a kid, right? Notice what comes out of his mouth. The first thing out of his mouth, look at verse 67. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. You see the, the, the subtle nuance. There, they, the people, the town, they're all looking, what kind of son will John the Baptist be? 
Zechariah says, no, he's not the Savior. Blessed be the God of Israel. Blessed be the God of Israel. As a matter of fact, notice when Zechariah actually acknowledges his son. It's not in verse 67, 68, 69, 70, 71, 72, 73, 74, 75. It's not until 76 where he says anything about his son and you, child. It's almost an afterthought. The people are looking at the son and Zechariah is looking at his God who gave him a son. And, and when Zechariah can talk, he talks about his God. And then he finally in verse 76, oh, yeah, I got a child right here. And as for you, child, you will be called the prophet of the most high for you will be you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. You see. John the Baptist is not the greater light. A person born of a man and a woman is not the one who can fix the world. You will be his prophet. You will go before him. Do you remember how the apostle John writes about John the Baptist in John chapter one? Listen carefully. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to tell the truth about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light to all who did receive him, who believed in his name. He gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Do you see how John looks at John the Baptist? John the Baptist is not the light. There's one coming after him who's the real light. Now, what does this mean for us? The people were looking at John the Baptist to fix the world. And Zechariah holds his own son up and says, he can't fix it. The one that's coming after him, he'll fix it. He will play an important role, but he is not the star of God's show. My son will do much good, but not ultimate good. Advent, then, is a time of year where we ought to account for the darkness of the world. But it's also a time of year to account for the reality that despite our efforts, desires, causes, and passions, the world is in a condition that no mere human can fix. Not with your money, not with your politics, not with your talents, and not with your causes. All the money and dreams and ambitions of man cannot put this world back together again. It's a time of the year to come to grips with our limits, to bring our tired and overworked and overly ambitious selves to the Lord and to say, I am a lesser light and I'm OK with that. I yield that to you. Advent is good news to the activists. It's not up for you to fix the world. You can't go home 
and turn off Twitter and rest. Advent is good news to a politician that legislate and lead and love and serve, but you can't fix government. There is another that Isaiah says will put the government of the world on his shoulders. It's good news to tired parents. Do your part and love your children. But there is another who is the eternal father, says Isaiah. It's good news to sinners pursuing holiness. You will make strides and you will grow, but you will not be perfect in this life. Give yourself grace, the grace that has been given to you in Jesus Christ. God has left you here for a season to work out your sanctification, to be conformed slowly but surely to the image of Christ. Give yourself a break and rest in the finished work of Jesus. You see, Advent says you can't be God. And God never intended you to be it. He says, my shoulders are big enough. My strength is strong enough. My might is powerful enough. My wisdom is enough that you can actually be what he designed us to be from the beginning. And that's human. In the image of God, but with limits. We practice that during Advent, our humility. Now, if we're not the light, then who then will fix the world? Who then will put it back together? Who then will fix us and restore order one person at a time? Advent is a time to rest in the greater light that has arrived and it is shining. And his name is Jesus. When you look at Zechariah's prayer, you see the God-centeredness of it. In this prayer, the Lord God is doing the work. Look at what it says in verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us. He has spoken by the mouth of his holy prophets from the old that we should be saved from our enemies. In other words, What's strange about this is that this is it's actually past tense, right? Even though Jesus is still at this time when this was written, he was still when this was prophesied, he was still in his mother's womb. You know, John the Baptist was born before Jesus. And look at what it says. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and has redeemed his people. Jesus had not yet even came out of the womb. He had not done anything on the cross, but for Zechariah, it was as good as done. That we should be saved, not that we are doing the saving, that we should be delivered from the hands of our enemies, not that we are doing the ultimate deliverance. God would reach down into the darkness of our world. And God says, I will fix it, and I will fix you, and I will give you mercy, and I will give you grace. My hand will do it, and my hand alone, says the Lord. And look at what Zechariah does when describing how God would save us. You know what he appeals to? 
the imagery of light and darkness. Look at verse 78. Because of the tender mercy of God, the sunrise shall rise and visit us. From where? From on high. And the sunrise will give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. The sunrise will guide our feet into the way of peace. Where does the sun rise from? It does not come from the earth. It comes to us from the heavens, says Zechariah. Powerful metaphor right here. That Zechariah is taking what we know about the sun, which would have been immensely important then and now. Without the sun, we die. It rises and it gives us light that we might see. It warms up our cold earth. It helps us to have food and life, right? And here is what Zechariah is saying. In the way that the sun that you need every day it rises, and in the way that you would be, we would be unsafe without it rising, Zechariah is saying that's the way you need not the S-U-N, but that is the way you need the S-O-N. He rises upon you. He warms your heart. He lets you see life as life ought to be. All life is coming through him and light is coming through him, says Zechariah. And when you lay this on top of Isaiah 9, see, Zechariah quotes Isaiah. And listen to Isaiah chapter 9. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the deep darkness, the light has shone upon them. Well, what is the light? What is the light? What is the light? Isaiah 9, 6 or 7, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government, get that, the government of the world will rest on his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace, the one who will make peace between man and God and man and man. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Who is the great light? Who would overcome darkness? A son, a child, Jesus. It's no wonder he stands in the middle of a feast and says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. This is what we proclaim and rest in during Advent. God has done something. He has sent his son in the form of a servant who would drive away darkness of sin and rebellion and deliver his people that we might worship our God in holiness and righteousness without fear. And this child would grow up with the weight of the world upon his shoulders and he would die on a cross and darkness would come upon the face of the land in broad daylight. And he would fight the darkness, not with weapons, but by willingly laying down his life to take our sin upon himself. And he would drive the darkness away. 
by becoming dark. That he would go into a ground, into a tomb, and three days later he would rise in power and in light that we might walk in his light. He went to war and he won. He's on the throne now and he is returning. And all that separates us from the full revealing of his kingdom is time. It's time. In The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, C.S. Lewis does a really great job at talking about the world through the lens of darkness and ice and snow, that if you remember how he depicts Narnia, he speaks of the evil white witch who has frozen everything. And listen to what Mr. Beaver tells the kids about Aslan. Wrong will be made right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets his death. When he shakes his mane, we will have spring again. You see the image? You see the image? On the cross, Jesus has driven away the darkness. And when Aslan comes back and shakes his mane, we will have spring again. And the coldness of the earth will warm. And the coldness in your heart will warm. And things will be all new. That's ours, Christian. We believe the sun is shining. And one day when he starts, he will finish. And we celebrate that every Advent. And so when you light your Christmas trees and string your lights, just know that you're imaging something more than just lights. You're imaging light shining in darkness and the darkness will not overcome it. And you rest in that this season, says Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, I do ask and pray that we would come to grips with the darkness in the world and even in our own hearts. And if we're really honest, Lord, we try. We try to fight away our own darkness by presenting our good works before you. We try to fight away the darkness by getting behind our causes. And these are good things to do, Lord, but I pray that we would embrace our humanity this season that we would be able to turn off our causes and those things that we are passionate about and to rest, to rest that our Savior, our King, He has overcome the darkness. I pray for those who are grieving this season. May the light of your gospel and the good news of the finished work of Christ go there and warm us up. We pray these things for Christ's sake. Amen.